Hey, this is Rev Jones. This is Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here. And if you're hearing my voice, it can only mean one thing. It's time for another dose of Focus on Metal. Hope that you enjoyed last week's dynamic duo of an episode. But this week, we have just one guest. You heard him right up front with the uh, fastest ID I think we've ever had in the history of the show at a massive two seconds. That is bassist Rev Jones. And if you don't know who Rev Jones is, by the end of this episode, I absolutely guarantee you will know who the guy is. He's recorded with a whole bunch of people, including uh, Michael Schenker Group, Leslie West, Paul Gilbert, James Kotak, uh, you know, one of our longtime guests, George Lynch, uh, also with Steelheart, Jack Frost, Black Symphony, uh, one of his first bands years ago, Forte, and a whole lot more. So obviously the guy is very in demand in the studio, but he is also in big demand on the touring circuit as well. And he has appeared with all those guys I just mentioned, as well as uh, filling in in Fuel and uh, Texas Hippie Coalition and uh, Metal Shop, just Addressed a Kiss, all just a whole bunch of different bands that he has been out on tour with as well. And when he's not out there playing bass, as, uh, as he puts it, he has the best second job in the industry, and he has the uh, touring guitar tech for George Thorogood. So it goes without question that this guy has been around the block in the music industry and has a lot of cool stuff to talk about, and he's very, very busy. And if that wasn't enough, he has just put out his first solo album. It's called Backwash, and that's actually why the guy's even on the show this week is doing a little bit of self-promotion. So that is what I have in store for you. And just right up front, for those of you that listen to us on uh, on Internet Radio, and if you've got uh, one of the stations that we've got more of a shorter time allowance... I will apologize right up front, probably apologize on the back end as well, but uh, this is uh, definitely going to be a long episode, so unfortunately, if it's uh, one of those hour time slots, that uh, we will have to cut it short for you guys, but nonetheless, it's always available. You know where to find it, and I can tell you again later, but I'm just, hey, I'm saying right up front that I had a good, well over an hour conversation with Rev, and I've trimmed it down some. But a lot of good stuff Rev has to talk about. Want you guys to hear it all, as well as getting a few bits and pieces of his solo album, Backwash. And of course, you know, the guy has some great stories about Michael Shanker, good stuff about... uh, about Steelheart and stories about Mountain, so all kinds of good stuff, and I want you guys to be able to hear as much of it as possible. But with all of that that I've said, I still promised a buddy that I would feature their latest and greatest as Track of the Week, so saying that, I think it's time for Track of the Week. All right, track of the week this week. I was kind of psyched, and I had heard back from our buddy Rick Ritzler. For those of you who are longtime listeners, you may remember that back on episode 135, we featured Rick talking all about the Robot Lords of Tokyo and uh, their 2012 release, Virtue and Vice. 
And it was actually a, a release that I really, uh, really thought was killer. It had featured some guests in there with Chris Poland, Tracy G, and uh, Wayne Finley from the uh, from the Shanker Group. Awesome, awesome release. And Rick recently reached out to me and uh, informed me that they had a brand new EP out. It's called Rise Robot Rise, and it's five tracks because hey, it's only an EP. But every one of those tracks is pretty damn awesome. And I told Rick that I would get the word out. And this time, what they've done is they've said, you know, the other ones we've done, we've done a lot of guest spots and all that good stuff. But this time, we're going to go right back down to that that core of, uh, of folks that are involved with the band. And that is, of course, the, the guys who write to all the songs with Rick Ritzler on drums and Paul Jones on lead vocals. But also what they've done is they've teamed up with a couple of guys who have been uh, peering with the robots. And i uh, got Joe Veers on bass and Steve Thito doing rhythm and lead guitar and uh, Bo Van Bibber on the rhythm guitar. So now they've kind of settled into this core group of robot lords. And I think probably the best way to describe this is really just to read the the release on the album. And it says, In the past, they warned you to watch the skies. Now the robot lords return with the thunder from down under on Rise, Robot Rise. Emerging from the ashes and cracked crevices of blood-strained streets, this long-awaited EP brings five bruising uppercut to the jar of bullshit music. Feel the shake, revere the riff, smell the sweat, love the loud. The Robot Lords of Tokyo have come for you. And I couldn't say it any better than that. So uh, with that, I think that we should probably get to rolling a track of the week. Tough choice on this one, but in this case, I am going to have to roll you track two from Rise, Robots Rise. It's called Looking for the Sun.
There you go. Track of the week. And if you want to find out more about Robot Lords of Tokyo, you can go to facebook.com slash Robot Lords of Tokyo. Can't be any simpler than that. So with that out of the way, why don't we move on to our guest of the week? Described him pretty ad infinitum up front. That is bassist Rev Jones. So a few weeks ago, I uh, took a couple of hours out of a Saturday morning and had a uh, pretty long, killer conversation with Rev. Now, some of it was me going off into Baseland and all that, and so we kind of had that kind of musical geek thing. So a lot of that I took care of, and you're not going to have to sit through uh, our musical ramblings for the most part. But uh, even with that said, definitely a long, a long conversation, but uh, a lot of good stuff, a lot of stuff about Rev's brand new solo album, Backwash, as well as uh, relating that back to all of his musical history as well. And if as you're listening, you're digging what you're hearing between the conversation and the music, then you can head up to RevJones.com. You can also go over to YouTube.com slash user slash RevJones. You go to Facebook.com slash RevJonesBase or on ReverbNation.com. It's uh, RevJones. And then, of course, the official RevJones store, which is RevJones.BigCartel.com. Figure, get that out of the way early in case I forget to mention it later on. And for those of you that uh, can stick around for the whole episode, Rev even rolls those out himself. So why don't we do a quick sample off of Rev Jones' first solo album. It's called Backwash. Do a sample of that, and we're going to roll right into my conversation with Rev Jones. Good to talk to you. I was actually supposed to talk to you, I think, way back in 2015 about the Blasted to Static album, but I guess uh-huh. scheduling didn't work out. I ended up talking to Jeff, but it's good to talk to you now. Oh, well, it's better late than ever. You got it. <laughs> so anyways, obviously, I got you on the line today to talk all about the uh, your first solo album, right? Backwash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, sure. uh, 
I think it's uh, it's actually a very cool concept. Officially, you know, I when I looked at it and said backwash, who the heck's gonna name their album backwash? But then with you know with the first song on the album, you, you, if you're actually yeah. listening to the lyrics, you pretty much figure out that this is you know this is your backwash of all your influences coming back on the album. And I thought that's a pretty cool yeah. freaking way of, of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny that I actually uh, you know like some a couple of these songs I wrote back in '94. And uh, I was going to put, it was a project I was going to put together with a couple of buddies. Uh, and that's what it was going to be called was backwash, <laughs> you know? And uh, I, it, it just kind of never, it didn't happen. You know, uh, you know, I had so much other stuff going on that, you know, so it never happened. And these songs never got, those songs never got used, which was like uh backwash, uh, Betty blue and uh, long legged lady. You yeah. know, they were, they were all three and nothing changed on them. I mean, they stayed exactly the same. And uh, I just, never could use them, you know, cause uh, other bands I was in. And so when I started, you know, uh, I pulled them kind of out of the, out of the archives, I guess, you know, and, uh, you know, pulled them out and they just kind of fit in with what, you know, what I was writing now. Hmm. And, but yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of that whole thing of, uh, you know, if you have this, if you have this, you know, cup of beer, you know, it's got all the backwash at the bottom, you know, and everybody's like, ah, give me another one. <laughs> well, that's, that's where all, that's where all the good stuff is. You know, <laughs> that's where all the alcohol is set. You know, you're just throwing it away. You know, So I, that's I, kind of how I, I always thought about some of these bands that I grew up watching that were incredible bands, but, you know, but they just never, they kind of got overlooked, you know? Yeah. They were just like the, like the backwash of everything, you know? So that was kind of the whole thing of it. Yeah, no, I thought it was a, a real cool yeah. way of putting it and, you know, listening even to the lyrics and stuff. And, uh, you know, I could tell that, that you and I have kind of that same pool of influences for our playing. And, yeah. uh, you know, probably back when you started playing bass was probably back when I was playing bass as well and kind of transitioned to guitar. But uh, uh, but it's it's pretty cool to just kind of be like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I remember that band and that band and, and listening to yeah. that. And so, uh, yeah, it, it definitely brought back a, a lot of good stuff and uh yeah overall pretty pretty interesting album now you know with getting jim on board for guitar was that something where you had to go out and find a guitarist that really fit your bass playing style was that kind of the direction you had to go in or did you just kind of fall into it well it was it was actually by just an accident you know i was just uh i wasn't planning on you know like putting an album out and actually releasing it i was i went back and re-recorded some of these songs so the guys that play with me here could uh, learn them, you know, to, to do it, you know, just at some shows. And I was going to, I did the initial first four songs. I was just going to uh, give it away on my website, you know. So I, I called Jim because I've known him for, you know, ever. We never played together uh, for a long time. And then we actually, I played on, uh, me and him played with Steve Moore, the mad drummer. We did this Christmas uh, uh, metal version of a, uh, little drummer boy. And I got actually Jeff Martin on to sing it. Hmm. And we had all done it, you know, like at our houses, you know, and in about an hour, you know, <laughs> we just take through the tracks. We did it. And, uh, he went and shot a video and, you know, we put it out. It was kind of cool. So I, uh, originally, uh, that's how I, that's the first time I even recorded with him. So I called him about doing the leads on these songs, you know, the solos. Yeah. So I sent him the sent him the demos of it. And he, you know, recorded some solos and then he, called and talked to me and he, he didn't think I should give it out. He thought I should, you know, just, you know, write a full album. You know, he thought it was something really cool, something that I was overlooking, you know, that's how he actually came aboard on it. And, uh, and at the time I had, I had played drums and uh, a friend of mine had played drums on the original demos. 
So once we got going, I decided to get Jeff Martin to redo the drums, and uh, which was the last thing done. Everything was done before the drums, you know. <laughs> so which I mean, which is actually kind of cool. It's, it's, it was weird for Jeff, you know, but one advantage of that is that you know exactly where everything else is in the song. Yeah, you know, and so I, I was like that myself. But baselines is if you know what the vocals are doing exactly, then when you're writing a bass part, you know you can. You know, sometimes you can go with it. You can do counterpoint off of it. You know, you can do a harmony of what it's, you know. Right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of cool things about that. And which one thing that was cool about it for Jeff was that he could throw in these oddball drum fills without it affecting anything because everything was already in place, you yeah. know. Yeah. And that's interesting you talk about it like that because you may listen to it. I would have almost thought that you did kind of that traditional put the drums in because they really do groove right along with everything else. And it just, yeah. it's, it's really sounds like the old school built up from that foundation. So it was, it's pretty well integrated. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, one cool thing, it, I kind of learned this from, uh, you know, Michael Shanker, uh, you know, playing with him all those years, you know, the, the first thing that's recorded on those albums is the guitar mm. and you go back and put everything else in the first album I did with him, uh, Jeff Martin played drums on it. And I got there and I was kind of shocked that, you know, it was just like a click track. And his guitar, yeah, the solos and everything, no backing, no rhythm tracks or anything, and it was like, well, that's weird. And you know, so we played to it, but that way, it nothing changed. He wrote the song this you know, a certain way, so he didn't have to play to the drummer. He didn't, you know, yeah, and whatever. So that way, it kept his feel, and uh, which is funny because, you know, like say a song like uh, Armed and Ready. Uh, you know, Simon Phillips played on that record, but he never played with Simon back then. Yeah. And I don't, I, I think he would have had a problem playing actually with Simon because if you do the parts exactly like Simon, he has, a, you know, he gets off, you know, because, you know, one thing about Simon Phillips, he came in and he's playing to the track. So that, that first feel going into the verse is so, uh, so oddball and out of place. It's because it didn't matter what he played because everything started at that same time you know yeah and i've seen different drummers come in and play it exactly like that and michael would just tell them no please just play it different <laughs> you know and including when simon came back to play with him he didn't play that bill you know but it sounds great on the album you know so that's it's kind of that same concept that you know I, when i wrote these songs i had this this you know this feel you know how it how it should be done 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 whatever you know yeah. the rhythm is so it was good that I wasn't pulled away from that. You know, sometimes you get in there with the, with the drummer or whatever, and they naturally play what they want. And sometimes it, oh yeah, that sounds great. And you get away from what your initially, uh, your idea was, you know? Yeah. So, so sometimes it, it's, it's better because you they come up with a better idea. Sometimes it pulls you away from that and you forget about how cool that idea was, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was kind of a uh, different way of going about it, but, at the end result was that they came out sounding how I, I heard him sounding, you know? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, even, even Jeff, he thought, uh, when he had heard, he heard it at first, he thought something was different, you know, like where he was hearing the song, hmm. you know, like where, where the one was, you know, he wasn't catching what I was doing right off, but because everything was done, it was, you know, he played it, and then once he li listened back, he's like, "Oh wow, it made sense," you know. Mm. But yeah, you know, I, I kind of try to keep that uh, that old, you know, those old influences, you know, 
in in my music, that's how I would even describe what the music is. It's I sound like everybody I grew up listening to, you know. Oh yeah, I mean definitely. You know, you're going through it, and you know I can really hear like some some Van Halen influence on like Ring of Pain, and almost hear some of the David Lee Roth stuff on New Drug. And then I, I kind of like the way you sequence the album too, because things like Candy and Betty Blue. They're kind of more of a they're they're different. They're not like straight ahead rockers. There's a little bit more kind of an avant garde thing to those yeah. ones. And then you know, then then Mr. Polyester has kind of got that almost could have been in a soundtrack for Encino Man, but you know, played by the specials <laughs> kind of thing. You know what I mean? And then you go yeah. back after that to kind of more your straighter straighter rockers with the one track Mine and Songbird. And then yeah. I do like because I kind of just listened. I didn't read the no, you know, liner notes, didn't do anything else, just listen yeah. through. And then, you know, you end up with, because, uh, you know, if you get a bass player doing a solo album, you wonder, is it going to, if they're going to play something that's all instrumental and is it going to go veer yeah. to like, you know, something that Jocko would have done, like Portrait of Tracy, or is it going to be something different? And then I, and then, you know, I, I listen to touching bass and it's like, oh, it's, it pretty much encompasses your playing and it's uh, definitely like belongs right there on your soul album. So I really like the way yeah. you sequenced all of this. It kind of, kind of goes almost in little chapters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, what's, what's cool. You know, it's, uh, it was one of those things of uh, picking the songs, how they, you know, hmm. how they should go in order. I mean, actually one track line was, you know, what I, I thought originally I thought was going to be way early, you know, hmm in the uh putting it on there but then i started putting them you know laying them out how how they sounded good together and it's about like what you just said you know this song this had to be the next song of that one you know because it flowed perfect like you know yeah. and and then the next one had oh, oh this is gonna be the next one you know so it was kind of weird that one track mine ended up so far back on it but that's just how everything flows you know yeah, it's 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 pretty cool because it's. I mean, you, you think back to to us listening to albums, and I I listen to this almost like an A side, B side, and uh-huh. and one track mine is almost like that that hidden gem of the B side. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at something like uh, uh, Night at the Opera, it's the same deal, you know, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody's next to the last song. Mm, yeah, you know, uh, and I mean, it's like one of those. It's one of those things that I kind of hate albums where they automatically know these are going to be the you know, the key songs, let's right. put them right in the front, <laughs> you know, you have to have that first song has got to be killer, you know, cause if you don't grab them right off, they're going to next, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's like, I kind of, you know, once I pick that song to be first, it's the, it's the short one. It's immediately, it, immediately you're in the song, you know? Right. And that being said, you know, it, 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 and you know, it had to have that next, you know, the next one. So it was by luck, everything fell right together, you know? Yeah. And just because I'm so many years of uh, playing and looking from an outside point of view, it was, it's easy for me to do that with myself. You know, I don't critique myself where, Oh, don't do that. You know? Yeah. I kind of look at it like outside, like, okay, this is the best song. This is the best second one. Third, you know, I'm not one of those, uh, make sure that everything's perfect. You know, uh, it's, it's whatever, you know, whatever sounds good, whatever goes good. You know, it's, it's, you know, you don't want to make, just because something tastes a little different, <laughs> I don't, don't want to serve that, you know. Yeah, yeah, it can't be like that. No, otherwise you, you'll it'll take forever. I I, I ran down that yeah. rabbit hole one time recording a CD, and and the studio went from being an eight track to a sixteen track, and it was kind of like. <laughs> I, just we went to ridiculous lengths of oh no wait a minute we're, we're going to add this little bit of spice and this and we got to change yeah and it became a clusterfuck really quickly yeah yeah you know I mean it, it's funny because you know from the when I first started recording this till 
when it was actually put out was it was actually a long period of time because you know I'd recorded you know I recorded that I had Jim do some stuff and then it was a few months later I had you know I wrote some more songs and did it you know and then had Jeff do it and then Jim mixed it and you know so it was kind of a long period while I was out on the road you know doing other stuff and uh I mean if actual recording time we could have done it in a weekend <laughs> you know the actual amount of time but uh most of what I did, most of my parts were all done, and I didn't really go back on them. You know, yeah. I mean, a couple, a couple of songs are. I mean, Ring of Pain. That's that's one take through the vocals, and when I went back to redo it, because uh, that, that was the original demo vocal, and I went back to redo it, and it, it I couldn't find a reason to redo it. It just sounded so cool, and it was almost like I couldn't capture, you know, the same exact vibe on it. You know. Yep. Same with Backwash, that was the demo bass, and you know the sound is a little different on it, but it, you know it's just a vibe more to me. Sure. You know? Yeah, I mean sometimes it works out that way. I'm, I'm, you know, an album that I did, and I just did all scratch rhythms, so everyone can kind of like a guide rhythm for every song. And when we got done, it was like I couldn't make a better a better rhythm track than the scratch rhythm I, I laid down. So it's like screw it, we're going to keep that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, the hell, even. Uh, that you know, I actually recorded a cover song for the album uh, that I I didn't put out on it. Uh, I'm gonna I'll probably release it later, just as a single or give it away or whatever. Hmm. Uh, I did a White Snake song, and it's funny because I actually played the guitar solos on it just so there would be something you know there to you know when you're listening to it. Yeah. And so then whenever Jim sent me the mix, it still had my guitar solos on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what did what did you do? He goes, oh man, I like those. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's all right, cool, whatever, you know. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's what sounds good, you know. It's, you know, if there's no reason to fix something, you know. I mean, I had that with the the new Stillheart album. You know, we, we recorded it. Uh, there was one song that, 
was from the last album that didn't didn't make it on there that uh this guy Ziggy had played bass on uh, he, he used to be at a uh, power Man. he had already played the bass track on it and i would end up playing it exactly the same mm. so there was no reason to redo it you know yeah and you know because then you're just wasting time just to you know make sure your name's on it <laughs> and if you're going to do it exactly the same why change it that's right yeah you know and uh you know cause, i mean it really at a certain point a long time ago i realized that it doesn't really matter who's playing on it <laughs> yeah because most of the guys that you grew up thinking played on stuff didn't. That's right. <laughs> I mean, and I'm surprised that, you know, sometimes I'll be seeing a, a drummer and I'll, I'll think, God, he's, he used to be really solid. He, he kind of seems a little stiff now. Then I start thinking, oh, wait a minute, who produced that album? Oh, he didn't play on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, if you really knew how many albums that Dick Wagner played on, you'd be like, holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it was like Tommy Aldridge. I love Tommy's playing, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I I know Tommy's playing because Black Oak and all that. But most of what people think about Tommy's playing, he didn't play on. You know, <laughs> the the Aussie stuff. You know, the yeah. White Snake. You know, it's like people. You know, you start talking about it, and you think, oh man, yeah, that's not him. That's Angley Dunbar. You know, right? Yeah. You know, it's same with Rudy Sarzo. You know, nothing against Rudy, but I mean, he gets so much. He's remembered for so much stuff that he didn't play on. Yep. He was just in the band, That's you right. know. And uh, th- I kind of realized that when I was out with Michael Shanker, you know, because people would come up to have you sign a UFO record, you know, and you're in Greece or something, and you're like, I'm not on the record. <laughs> they didn't care. That's yep. the only time they're going to get to see Michael Shanker live and see this is the bass player they just seen. They don't care if you hear sign this. Right, you know? right. It's and, like, uh, uh, like from the Quiet Riot documentary where they're signing autographs, yeah. right? And and, and uh, the the kid doesn't want Chuck to sign the album. He doesn't even realize it's yeah. like it's not Rudy. It's really Chuck on the album. That was yeah. a great scene. I know. It's funny because I've been telling people that for years, you know, because him and Kelly were the main two bass players, mm. you know. And uh, it's like nobody knew that forever. And I'd always, I'd always tell people, point that out. I said, it's right there on the album. It, te- it tells yeah. you who played on everything. I think Rudy played on maybe one song. I think so, yeah. Uh, and then Kelly Garner played most of it, you know. But it's like funny that I've been saying that for years, and then when that documentary came out, and I'm buddies with Chuck, and he didn't actually tell me about it. Somebody else that had remembered me talking about it in the past had seen it and, and wrote me and said, "You got to see this." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, once I realized that in my head, then I didn't have a problem with signing a record. You know, I would then I would just take the picture of the record and I'd find the best looking guy yeah. and I sign over him, you know, because I didn't want to. Because sometimes the bass player's the this oddball looking cat that I don't want to be, you know, I'm going to over the singer. This is me. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I mean, and nowadays too, you go for a lot of the bands and a lot of times whoever's playing in the band, they've been playing in a ton of other stuff anyway. So it's like, yeah. again, yeah, it's whoever, whoever you just saw, it's like, yeah, it could be your one shot of, of uh, actually going to, and, uh, and getting to meet yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what's, and what's funny is, I mean, at the same time, I, I, I would hate to be one of those. I mean, I, I've actually played on stuff. I can't tell people I played on, you mm-hmm. know, that, you know, I was just there and, you know, Hey, just play this. And you know, it's not going to matter, but, uh, you know, just don't, you know, don't tell people that you're on that album kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So I know kind of how it is, but I can't imagine like Bobby Rondinelli, you know, uh, I play with him and with uh, Leslie West. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, who, that's using our little trio. And, uh, you know, he was the drummer on Love at First Team, mm. you know, Scorpions. And him and, and Jimmy Bain played bass on it. And, you know, the story was that Herman and Francis were so bad and drunk all the time that Dieter Dirks would send them home. All right, that's great. And then have, Rondinelli and uh, 
Jimmy Bain come in and re- replace the tracks. Right. And they weren't allowed to ever tell anybody. It didn't become public until Francis tried to started trying to sue the Scorpions for you know back royalties or whatever. So they countersued him. Yeah. For paid royalties that he shouldn't have got, and brought, you know brought it to you know to where everybody knew. Herman didn't care because he got money because he wrote the songs anyway. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah. But Bob, Bobby, man, he, he loved that day because he could finally tell people, you know, that's me. <laughs> that would be a hard one, you know, or like Ainsley Dunbar, you know, right. taking $2,000 to play on that record and then it becoming like the biggest record for the next 10 years, that White Snake album, you know, yeah. that would... That'd be a hard one. <laughs> yeah, even, I mean, you know, we've had, we have different producers and engineers we've had on the show, and they've even said, you know, even off the record, oh, yeah, it was so-and-so that did this and so-and-so that did that, or yeah. or even just, like, not off the record talking about, like, mm-hmm. you know, James Kotak from going in and, and uh-huh. then bringing him in at night to do some Scorpion stuff and, like, yeah, don't tell anybody kind yeah. of thing, but now everybody knows about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's funny because uh, there's so much of that you would never imagine, you know, mm. that it, it's, I mean, it just, you know, it just happens. It's, it's about the song. And I, I totally understand that. If it's just a basic song that, like, for instance, Nikki Six. Mm. you know, I think Nikki Six is a very smart person. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a, ba- I don't, I don't know if he plays bass because uh, <laughs> he's not playing live. It's a, ba- it's, there's a bass on the backing tracks, you know, like, proof of that is he throws the bass down at the beginning of Red Hot and it's still playing, <laughs> Yeah, you know. But he's hitting, the, he's hitting the E string, but you're clearly yeah. hitting an A or a G. It's like, wait a minute, yeah, yeah, yeah. And but Nikki is a smart, he's a smart person. He writes the songs, yeah, and he knows I want the song to sound the best. So I could totally see him saying, "Hey, I want you to play bass on this, right? I want the best bass on it because I want this song to be, you know." And that's how because when I listen to, there's a couple of those albums that uh, Molly Crew albums that I can listen to start to finish, and I can tell you there's four different bass players. <laughs> I can hear that, you know, I, cause I, I really listen in for certain things when I've listened to stuff and I can tell when it's different drummers and, you know, different guitar players just by little things, you know, they do. And I can hear four different bass players on that one album, you know, yeah. cause it's, there's different styles. It's one of those things that, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. no, nobody really, really cares who played on it, but they would, if it was terrible, they, they would remember that, you know, right. so it's understandable that, you know, it's like, I don't, but I, I know that Kiss didn't play on half of their stuff. You know, yeah. they had uh, other guys come in. It, that's good because it made those albums sound great. You know, right. not every, not everybody could be King Crimson. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, pretty much nobody could be King uh, Crimson. No, yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your gear. And obviously, you're, uh, you're yeah. Play, you play uh, Dean basses, and now has that come through? Yeah. Um, you know, because I know Michael plays Dean. I know Leslie plays Dean. Was that just something that uh, you you came into with association with those guys, or was that something you've been doing for a long time? Well, I actually, uh, when I first started playing with Michael, and then later playing with Michael, I actually had a uh, I played Fender forever, had an endorsement, and then I switched over to Brubaker, mm. and so then when I actually met Elliot, the, the who owned Dean, I told him I had this idea, you know. Of getting maybe getting a uh, you know like a V or an ML hmm. and having it you know instead of black and white having it half red half yellow just for one song during the show you know so I you know kind of stand next to Michael doing the little you know side to side thing he does and you got those two headstocks you know and he loved it so he actually you know I told him I said I, you know I have a deal with Rubaker they make my bases they're customs you know so we did a deal you know he maybe maybe a couple of bases and. You know, it's a non-exclusive deal, you know, mm-hmm. just as a, you know, cool, here's an extra. So, you know, I liked them and slowly I, you know, had to make a couple other things. And then I just finally transitioned over, you know, that it wasn't really a, I had to kind of deal is that, you know, I was, once they st- I started getting them and I was pleased with them, you know, and it made more sense too, is if you're going to be out with Shanker, 
and he's playing Dean and you're playing Dean, mm-hmm. you're both going to be getting press about it. You know, you're, you're going to get more push. And yeah. then Leslie, I actually hooked up with Leslie via that. He needed a, he was going to open up for uh, MSG on a tour and the budget wasn't there for him to have like, you know, like a, his full band with Corky. And uh, I think Richie was playing with him at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was just going to be him. And he was going to use me and Pete Holmes. Okay. And uh, so then that turned into, okay, now Corky's coming, but cause he's, he's just going to do it for free, you know, for merch. And then, so it was just going to be me and them. And then a bunch of stuff happened with Michael's ex. So the tour canceled. So it, it never happened. So I, you know, I called Leslie and, uh, I told him, I said, well, if you ever need somebody, you know, I know all the songs, you know, just call me. I can jump on a plane and do it. So he got the, the Satriani tour and they called me and hired me. But that's how it came about was uh, him and Elliot talking. And Elliot was a bass player, the owner of Dean. He was a bass player too. Mm. And he had told Leslie, you got to get rid of, you know, you got to, you need to have a, a killer bass player like the old days. You know, Felix was awesome. You right. know, Jack Bruce was awesome. And then, you know, and Richie Scarlett is, is a, not a bass player. He's a guitar player, you know? Mm-hmm. So it didn't fit. That's, you know, those years I seen him, you know, and it didn't fit. Nothing against Richie, but it, you know, it didn't have that thing. So, you know, Elliot told him, you need to get somebody like Rev. That's how I ended up getting the deal, you know? And at, it, even at that time, I still didn't exclusively play Dean, you know? Yeah. But it just kind of, you know, it rolled into making sense. Yeah, and it's funny because actually Elliot... <laughs> started filling in Michael Shaker tour for me because, uh, you know, I'd left MSG, uh, in 2006 at the end. And then after that, almost every year up to a couple of years ago, I was still doing tours with him, you know, whenever he'd come to America, I would be the bass player, yeah. you know? And, uh, but there was times that that and, and, uh, mountain or that and still heart would, you know, cross paths. So I'd have to get a, a fill in for one. So I got Elliot, he filled in, you know, with on the uh, MSG tours, a couple of them. Mm. You know, yeah, I think it's um one thing that's pretty pretty nice. I think about like the Dean, it's just those body shapes. Because I remember back in the eighties, yeah. I had a hammer that was kind of modeled on an Explorer, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. it balanced a lot better than my P base did, and so it ended up feeling a lot less heavy on the shoulder when you were doing you know long and energetic shows and stuff. And is that kind of an advantage you find from from the Deans as well, and those that type of body shape? Yeah, I mean, I tell you, the, the only one that I don't like. Is the ML <laughs> the problem with the ML one, especially being a bass, is you got twenty four frets. That's the longest bass in the world because you got to be at the back, you got to be at the top, you know. Yeah. That you know. So, but the problem with any kind of B, there's only two ways to stand playing a B. You either you either look like Michael Shaker, which between your legs, mm-hmm. or you look like Dimebag, you know. Right. And uh, worse, you know. They're kind of awkward is what I'm saying. But yeah. other than that, the rest of them, they're great. You know, and one of the main reasons I like them, uh, I've always been a, a Dean fan, mm. even before I've used them, you know, back in the day, because ZZ Top, you know, right. all, all those guys like that, you know, they always had the, like the Z bases, in the, you know, the, that Explorer kind of model, you know. Yeah. It was, look, they looked great. I loved that headstock, you know, always. I just always remembered, you know, Dean was an American company, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, back then when Zelensky had it, it was the only company that you really got the, uh, however you wanted the guitar, you know, right. you wanted EMGs in it, you wanted, you know, they, that's how they made it. And they always had the hot chick on the, uh, 
ads. Oh, yeah. They used yeah. to get all kinds of shit from the ads. I remember that. Every time you'd open up yeah. a guitar magazine, there was someone writing in about the ads. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Zelensky, he was smart. You know, he knew back then. He was a young guy, you know, that he started that company, you know. Yeah. But one cool thing about most deans were the strap sets on the... Uh, on your left side, on the next side, mm-hmm. the strap, the strap sets on the back of the bass or the mm-hmm. back of the, you know, the back of the guitar. Some people have problems with it, you know, instead of it being on a horn, yeah. it's on the back, but it, there's a lot more advantages to it. The way it sets, the, the way you can move easier, you know, yeah. uh, you ha- have a little more control that way until you play like that. You don't realize it, you know, but I mean, it's funny cause I got <laughs> half of my bases are like that. The other half are actually on the horn, you know? Yeah. So I had to, you know, kind of switch between them, but in all in all, you know, I dig the, I dig the look of them. You know, the main one that I play is, it's actually my model. Hmm. It's like a, re, it's a reverse caddy. Yeah. People don't really like to do the artist models anymore because if you like a guitar, but you don't, you know, you don't like the Dave Mustaine, you don't want the Dave Mustaine guitar, mm-hmm. you know? So Dean, they always make sure that they don't, unless it's a, somebody big, they don't really like to do the, the model names, you know? Right. They give it. They give it a different name. Yeah, exactly. Like the Leslie West one, they called it the Delta Queen and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the Soul Terror or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So when I was talking to him when I initially made my first one, me and Elliot worked out that it, you know, well, it's a Rev Caddy, it's a Reverse Caddy, so that's what it would be called. It's a Rev Caddy. Hmm. So that way, my name's still on there. I, I think I was the first one to have you know that thought of that. Hmm. I just because I thought it would be better. I like to be able to get all the way up and use everything on the deck. Sure. Which is hard to do when you got like certain. You wouldn't want to play an upside down strat. Right. You know, right. you wouldn't get the last four friends. So that's why I kind of like the reverse caddy puts that there's nothing underneath the neck at all. Right. And it puts that that bottom horn now is on the top. So it actually pushes it out enough that it puts the instrument in the right place. Because one thing that a lot of people don't like about like these and MLs and stuff like that is that where your strap sets is about five frets farther away from where it normally sits, you mm-hmm. know, because it's being in and it takes a little bit of time to get used to that, you know? Right. So that is the advantage of having the horn up top, you know? Everything, I think everything about them really is cool. I haven't found any problem with the Deans at all. You yeah. know, the way that, and that goes back, you know, all the years, you know, they were always, always a company. And, you know, now they're making, you know, you know, they started uh, the American factory again years back. Now it's mostly American made stuff. Right. Which, which really doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, hell, I got some, a couple of minor stock Korean ones that are just as good, you know. Right. Uh, you know, so it really doesn't matter as long as they're made well. Yeah. I mean, if they're mass producing them in, in a garage in Tijuana, you know, you, you might not want those. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're going to throw a fender sticker on it, you know, and you know, charge a little more, but, yeah. you know. Uh, but, you know, they're mostly going back to most of their sales are American now. Right. You know, and every year it keeps going up. And that's what they're pushing on because it was always an American, you know, factory and keeping it, keeping the money here. And, you know, but on top of that, given, given that kind of quality, you know. Right. So it, the cool thing at Dean is they're, something I noticed right off with them is that they're, uh, it's like a family. Right. You know. When I talked to Shanker, that's exactly what he said, too. Both times that I've talked to him in recent years, he talked about Dean being a family. Yeah. And, you know, it's, well, you know, whenever Elliot bought the company, uh, you know, Zelensky didn't own it no more. He, he So Elliot bought it pretty cheap because the guy that owned it, you know, he basically bought the logo right. more or less, you know, and he was smart. He, he hired Dean Zelensky to come in and be the A&R guy, mm-hmm. you know, the guy that started it. And he was there for a while. And whenever, I remember whenever they come down to 
to make the the Michael Shaker custom one. We were at Chicago House of Blues, and they brought down like three or four of them. They didn't have holes in certain spots yet, so he would play it and go, "Oh no, I want my you know the knob here," and they'd go over there. He'd drill a hole, pop it through there, and they'd you know. <laughs> Keep Frankensteining these things until it was okay. This is the perfect one. Yeah, you know this happened over a two-hour period at Soundcheck. You know, and uh, it was like you know us and Zelensky and like Michael Batio was there. You know, and mm. so it was pretty cool. I'm you know watching that whole thing. That's the kind of thing that I noticed right off with them. And that you know that's how they always are. You know, everybody's like a big family there. You know, you got you know, and a lot of those guys that you know like uh, David Vincent, Evil D. You know from. Morbid Angel, you know, people like that that work for the company that are also, you know, in bands, they know how people think, right. you know, they're not, they're not just got some guy that knows how to build guitars that really don't know anything else about music, you know? Right. And, uh, and, and same with L, but L had always knew from the beginning when he got the company, that's how they got dime back, you know, because Daryl was playing Washburn's, you know, mm-hmm. and those, those things were awful, you know, but at the time before that, the guy that owned Dean didn't have any money to you know put behind them wasn't really making anything good so once elliot got the company that was the first person they went back after was was daryl time bag and they got him back and then they got shaker and then they got leslie west who was playing those god-awful steinbergers you know <laughs> and you know same deal with him once leslie got back on that you know because leslie's always awesome yeah. but once he got you know got a guitar that was like that then it it was back to oh you know that's how it's supposed to sound you know right. Yeah, I mean, definitely someone like Leslie. I mean, you, you need to have that that wood to really get that that yeah. classic Leslie West sound. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh yeah, and I, I watched Leslie. He was, you know, all those years of not having a great band behind him, he kind of lost that confidence. Then, mm. you know, he, he would he always played with an octave, you know, like a low octave on everything to, to cover up because he was. He even told me later he said he knew the bass wasn't going to support it. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that he. Once he started playing those, you know, he had that sound again, and you know, and I started playing with them, and you know, it's like he would had more confidence, and we yeah. took that stupid octave pedal and hit it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, nobody wants to hear that; they want to hear the other stuff. You know, yeah. But. So, yeah, another thing I noticed too is that is that you're using Kaler, and and to this day, people give me crap because I prefer a, like a Kaler over a Floyd. And my one of my favorite old, you know, Charvels, U.S. made Charvels. It's got a Kaler. I freaking love that thing. And uh, yeah. never gotten into the Floyds, and it was like, holy shit, Rev's using a Kaler, and I really like that. Well, it's you know, it's why would you want to drive a Chevy when you got a Lamborghini? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it's funny, you know. Actually, I uh, back in the well, I think like maybe 89, 90, something like that. I had a, you know, I played fenders and I had these, two, these two old fenders that I'd actually put tremolos on them mm-hmm. back then. And, uh, uh, I'd actually noticed that I could, wow, man, I could get another saddle in there and that middle string would go right between these two pickup poles and it would still be in phase. So I did that. I had, I called and, you know, had Gary Taylor make me the, the piece to turn it into a five string, mm-hmm. and, you know, put another 2D key up there and, so I converted those those P bases to five strings back in like '89 or whatever, you know, wow. with the tremolos and uh, the neck was it was a little rough. I, mean, I I play those things now. I don't know how I played them. <laughs> that trust that trust runs in, in hell in there because they're you know too many strings pulling on it. But yeah. so Gary Taylor had sold the company you know years back, and uh, then they stopped making them. Yeah, and he noticed he noticed people, uh, you know, buying old Taylors for ridiculous amounts because they needed the parts yeah you know so he started a part you know he just started a company selling parts 
and then he finally contacted them and you know if they weren't to see, to see if they were still using it and they said no so he bought the you know basically bought the name back and started putting them out again you know and uh that's whenever uh he was they were trying to find uh you know build the roster up again and gary had told the they and our guy uh he said, I know there was a guy in Oklahoma that, uh, that played bass. He had a tremolo. I don't remember his name. <laughs> and uh, so they were kind of like just searching, you know, trying to figure out who it would have been. And the guy contacted me. And, uh, you know, I didn't really want a tremolo at the time. But he said, well, we had these fixed bridges that we just came out with. So he sent me one. And, you know, they're incredible. It's, you know, the best. It's the best fixed bridge there is, period. But uh, that's how I, I got back using them, you know. Yeah. And then I finally put a tremolo back on them. But. Yeah, I, Kaler's better. I mean, the Floyd Rose, it's like, why do you got to have that thing locked up there? Right. You know, you don't, you don't need that. I mean, I Jeff Beck plays a standard uh, trim low, mm-hmm. like on, a, on those fenders, and he uses it the whole time he's playing, and he never checks his tuning one time during the show. Yeah. He doesn't change, he didn't change guitars last time I seen him. He played the whole show with the same guitar. Never checked his tuning, and he used the tremolo the whole time, yeah, up and down, time. up and down. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to lock those. That's the only problem. Once you lock them, if you go out, now you're screwed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or if you break a string, uh, I mean, it gets this. Some people look at it like it's better because they can pull it back through and just keep using the same string. But you know, you're using a broken string, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, I so I, I laugh at people that got the other ones. So you know, they're all jealous. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, you answered one of my questions earlier about, you know, how long it was taking you to put this all together, because I know yeah. that, you know, you're doing all kinds of stuff. I know we talked to Millie a few weeks back and he was talking about, yeah. you know, what's coming up for Steelheart, what you guys did last year. I mean, just, yeah. you know, that alone has is, is kind of got a crazy schedule. And I mean, you know, I, you, with the, everything you're involved in now. I mean, you're coming out of the, out of the time when we both kind of started in music, where you yeah. you basically did one band and you were that was the band you were in, and now you're doing all these different things. Do you do you miss the time of of being able to do just one thing? Uh, no, because I, I when I don't have anything to do, I it, it kills me. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I got ADD, so if I don't <laughs> have something something going on, I'm walking in a circle. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But even back whenever you know, like one of one of my first band, my first band that I like toured with and it was signed uh they were called forte mm-hmm. it was a speed metal band we were on massacre records and uh it was like 90 through 94 i guess i was in the band then i came back later but while i was in that band i played country five days a week hmm. that's what that's how i made money you know yeah. and uh so i was already used to that that was that was the biggest hardest transition is to go from playing speed metal to playing boom boom <laughs> Well, you know, and back then you had, you know, if you were playing country, you had to be country. Yeah. You know, you, we would, we would sneak in something like ice cream, man. <laughs> I think just cause they didn't know it was Van Halen song. If they would have, they would have freaked out, you know? And cause you had to play country and Western. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, that changed whatever tone Loke, you know, wild thing came out. Then it was like, Oh, you can play whatever you want. And now it's not, they don't even play country and country anymore. You know, it's like, it's like a really bad, uh, something that didn't didn't work in rock yeah those writers all went to country and screwed it up <laughs> you know but yeah I mean, it's you know sometimes it's kind of hard i've been i was lucky all those years of playing in playing in two bands or three bands you know at the same time i kept getting lucky that the tours would not cross yeah i don't think i could have done that with michael shaker you know because when i came back doing those tours with him they always crossed you know but in their initial first time i was in msg for from like 2000 to 2006 
shoot, we played one year, we played 300 shows, yeah. but we always played at least 200, 250, you know? So we were constantly on tour. Yeah. So you could, we couldn't have done that, but you know, later, whenever I first started playing with Steel Hard and Mountain, Mountain would, you know, they would do, we'd only do a tour, uh, maybe two legs in a, in a year, mm-hmm. you know, that were like a month long and Steel Hard would, would, we would do really tours. We would do, you know, like little, you know, we'd go to Korea for, you know, two weeks, you know, we'd be here, we'd do fly dates on the weekends, you know? Yeah. And so it kind of, you know, it kind of worked out, you know, because at one time I was, you know, playing, doing an MSG tour. I was still in Stillheart. I was in mountain, you know? (laughs) And, uh, you know, so it was like, I had a lot going. I mean, hell, even, even when I did the fuel tour back in 2004, uh, you know, I, I filled in for the bass player in fuel. He was, cause he was having a baby. So yeah. I filled in for like, uh, six and a half weeks, that six and a half weeks. I was actually off tour with Michael Schaefer for eight weeks. So that six and a half fell into that eight weeks, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, that was culture shock because Michael Schaefer crowd is, uh, you know, aging men that are balding and they got a scorpion shirt from 1972, uh-huh. you know, yep. and then you get to play with fuel and there's 6,000 good looking girls. If there's a guy there, it's somebody's dad or ugly boyfriend. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. We went to Shanker Fest this year and I think I was like third row and it was, that was the crowd that was around us. And <laughs> like, everybody is looking at my girlfriend, like, Holy crap! Why is she here? And she, she was kind of looking around, like, "What the hell am I doing here?" Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah, you see, you see a good looking girl at one of those shows. Uh, uh, she's lost, <laughs> <laughs> or she's or she's bringing you a drink. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, she was definitely out of place yeah. with the rest of us up there. But yeah, eh. but yeah, you know, it, it, but it's not. Uh, who cares? You know, I mean, it's it is great to look out and see a better looking crowd. Uh-huh. While like people, people like uh, Brian Adams and even Tyler, you know, they don't sell the first five rows; they upgrade them. Yeah. That way it's all, all the good looking people, you know? Yep. I mean, so there's nothing wrong with that, you know, but at the same time, you know, even though I'm looking in the crowd, I kind of don't even see them, you know, like right. I don't, I don't pay attention, you know, like my wife will even say that sometimes she's at a show and she'll say, did you see that, that weird looking, you know, person out there dancing, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, right in front of you. I didn't notice, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's easy I, to miss it. Cause you're also, I mean, I think if, People yeah. don't play. They don't realize that you're also looking, you know, even if it's not apparent, you're always looking at your bandmates. And especially as a bassist, you're looking at that drummer for that, for that visual cue for something. And yeah, yeah. that's a lot and of stuff that goes know, on. Well, and you're also lost. You're differently in the moment of, of oh, the yeah. song, what the stuff that's going on in your mind. You know, I mean, I'm, there's something about, you know, it's even hard to explain to people about, you know, there's something about music when you're playing it. It does something to you. Right. That. You know, that's why you keep playing it. Yeah. The only person I've ever been able to get that across to was people who were like hardcore runners. And you're to ask them if they yeah. ever got runners high. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, well, imagine that when you're playing an instrument and you're having that show, that, like the best show ever. It's the same thing. Like, it's, yeah, it's like playing, you know, if you're really good at playing a sport, that's, it's the same deal. Mm. You know, that's, that's how I got, you know, got good, fast playing music was that, you know, I, from when I was four until I was 15, you know, I, I wrestled, I boxed martial arts, baseball, you know, and I was incredible at all of them, you know? And, uh, so basically I learned how to learn. I learned that, that ability of, I knew I had to practice and, uh, I want to, I want to figure out how to do that. I'm going to figure out how to do it tonight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is, it's kind of funny. It's the same. I was even talking about it. It's the same deal. And it kind of goes back to my, my CD cover, you know, that's actually the picture on there is actually me when I was 12 months old 
and uh, you know, with the, that can of a can <laughs> of Coors in my hand, you know, and it, uh, my grandmother. And it's funny because she she would open a beer and chug it, and then she would open another one and sip on it the whole day. You know, <laughs> she had like she had like seven daughters or six daughters. You know, uh-huh. so and my grandpa was you know general in the air force, so she she needed that beer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she and she would set that beer down behind, you know beside her chair, and I would just run up and grab it as a little baby, a little kid, and I'd run off drinking it. You know, <laughs> and but there's and I can still to this day. If I drink out of a good aluminum can or uh, like one of those old cups, mm-hmm. it brings it brings back this this thing from when I was a child. You know, of those old coors were so thick that that beer stayed so cold in it. You know, yeah. or my my, my great grandparents had these aluminum cups you put in the freezer so you never needed ice. Yeah, my know? grandparents had the same things. Yeah. yeah, and it had that aluminum taste, but there was something about that, and it it triggers that in my head every time. And so it's, it's very similar, you know? Yeah. It's like, if you, whatever I, if I'm learning, you know, I pull out an album to learn, you know, all the songs on and I, I come across some very cool bass thing. It triggers something too. It's like, Oh wow. I, I start remembering back when I used to sit in my room and, and learn Randy Rhodes solos for guitar players that couldn't learn them. And I couldn't even play them at the time. You know, I, I hadn't been playing very long. I just always had a good ear for it. And, uh, but I could find all the notes, yeah. And, and, you know, so they wouldn't have to do it, but it was that same deal. It, it triggers that same thing that I had that memory and, you know, those, those were fun times, you know, You're right. that's why I still do that. I mean, I still like to randomly pick up, you know, like a, an album or a band, you know, like say, you know, every now and then I'll just say, all right, I'm going to do Led Zeppelin and I'll pull all the Led Zeppelin out and I'll learn every song. Mm. You know, most of those, I mean, I know, of course, but I'll actually learn every baseline not because I need to play those bass lines and I probably wouldn't play exactly what they are anyway. Yeah. If I was, if I was playing them, but it's that I'm more or less studying that person, you know? Right. I mean, I could, I could tell you right now, you, I could go play a, an ELP song and I'm going to sound like Greg Lake. Hmm. We're playing Peter Gabriel. I'm going to sound like Tony Levin. I might not play the same exact notes he's playing, but it, you're going to think it is because I know how those guys play, right. you know? So the, the same deal when I play in the mountain songs, I learned everything that Felix played, but I don't play any song. I mean, it's all improvised when we play, you know, I don't play, I never played bass line the same, but it sounds like what Felix would have played. Sure. You know? And I mean, half the time Felix was improvising too. So he was that kind of player. Yeah. You have to, I mean, it's held, you know, there is no set arrangement of a song. Hmm. If Leslie tries to do that, or we're going to play the short version, we're going to do this, this, and this, that's not going to happen because he's going to be up there extending the song, trying to figure out how to, how to, how to cut the part. Uh-huh. And you'll end up playing one song for 30 minutes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's trying to figure out how to get out of the song in two minutes, you know. But yeah, I, I, that's the greatest thing about, you know, and I do that with everybody. Any any band I'm playing with, if I'm going to do a bass lick or a fill or whatever, it's improvised, you know. And I might have I might have the pattern in my head or how I want it to sound, but it's improvised, no different than, you know, I, I play a bunch of stuff over the neck. I usually do that because my mind... In my head, something pops and says, I mean, you can't play that part upside down. <laughs> you know, it's like I'll literally think that and then I'll do it just to, to challenge myself on stage, jumping around like an idiot. <laughs> you know, and if I fell, <laughs> well, okay, who cares? <laughs> you know, I, I'll just giggle it off. And it's funny because a lot of people don't realize that about Michael Shaker. You know, like half of the solos in the night are exactly like the record. Right. And the other half are not. You know, they're just, they're, there's a, there's a formula, 
but you know, he still improvises. And, uh, I mean, I, I realized it because I, I could hear him in my ear every night. So I noticed he plays something different, you know? Yeah. But he, he used to have to on the set list, the songs that weren't note for note, he had to have what key the solo was in written next to it. Sure. You know, because he, you know, so he would know where, you know, what he was doing. But it's funny because if he break if he broke the string in the middle of a solo, he would have to just change guitars because he can't transpose it to the other strings because he's playing it how it was written. Yeah. So he can't just improvise in the middle. It's the funny thing about it. But you, any other time he can improvise, <laughs> you know. But it's just that confusing thing of it's one of those confusing Michael Shanker scenarios. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. And that, I mean, and it's cool that he does that too. And that was one thing I like with with Shanker Fest is that, I mean. If you want to just hear that solo, you could hear the album. But I love the fact that you yeah. go, you go there and you you hear what he's going to come up with that freaking night, and that's great. That's just that's the best part about seeing it live. Yeah, I know. I'll tell you, back in two thousand six, before he had his meltdown and freaked out and stuff, he was he was at the top of his game, like he is now. You yeah. know, now he's he's great. He didn't drink, you know. Uh, but he was playing the most oddball out of you know out of the box solos. On like uh you know like uh rock bottom you know mm-hmm. you know hit that long extended solo in the oh, middle yeah. and yeah. he would play he would play some stuff that was so cool and, you know, and me and Pete Holmes the drummer you know we you know we love Team Crimson and EOP and all those kind of bands so we like all the you know you like I like the weird guitar parts I understand them and he would do some oddball stuff that we would look at each other like really <laughs> you know <laughs> that came out of him you know and those are it's so funny that the in the the big super MSG fans would never notice those parts. Right. And that was the best, you know, that was the best thing. Cause I would see him do something that was so out of time. And so, you know, like almost jazz and he would end the lick and I could see him giggle, <laughs> you know, cause it was like, he went, oh, that's funny, <laughs> you know? And that's, that's the kind of, you know, mindset he is when he plays, you know, I'm, you know, I mean, he's truly a, 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 a musical genius, I guess you'd say, you know, he's everything he plays, he plays, you know, for there's something that created it, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, he's not trying to be this person. He's, you know, I mean, he's, he is trying to be, he's trying to be Jeff Beck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is, I mean, between Michael and Carlos Santana are probably like the most like spiritual players where they're just like, yeah, th- th- that's the only way I can describe the bo- how both of those guys play. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, it, it's so funny. One of the first things I learned about Michael and it's funny because you can look at it both ways, uh, is that, you know, he doesn't listen to music at all. Right. He's, he's so scared to listen to music. And the way I found this out was when I, when he called me about, uh, you know, auditioning or joining the band or whatever, I sent him a, a CD that had, you know, four or five different songs of different styles of me playing. Mm. And I sent a, a video of me, of me playing with Black Symphony doing Smoke on the Water because I sing a verse, you know? Yeah. So that way he can see I sing backups and, and a bass solo. So I sent him this stuff and, you know, then he called me and hired me, you know, and I, so when I get there to do the album, he hadn't even listened to that CD I sent him, uh, because he didn't want to be influenced. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to start writing a song and actually rip the song off that he heard while ago and not realize that's why that riff is in his head, you know? Right. Yeah. And, uh, so he avoids listening to music, you know? And I said, well, how did you, how'd you pick me? He said, I watched, he said, he turned it on to watch me sing. <laughs> and then he watched the bass solo part. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, some people, like, he talks about that, you know, not listening, and people think, oh, no, he's got to be bullshitting or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, I remember talking to him a couple years ago. We were just shooting shit about uh, wah pedals because the you know, the one he had was giving him problems. And I'm like, you know, have you seen this one this guy uses? And he was like, no. We, so we started going through three or four different wah pedals that I was recommending that, you know, would fit the bill for how he plays. And he genuinely wasn't aware of, of like any of them, which is like, holy shit, he really oh, just doesn't listen to anything. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and it, I mean, it, and it makes sense, you know, that, so nothing influences how he plays. So he can't start sounding like somebody. Right. But it, at the same time, uh, that being said on his songs, you know, he, the reason that they sound like Michael Shaker songs is because he didn't know anybody else sounds like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know? And, and so at the same time, and sometimes I wish he would, so he would come out of the pocket a little, or out of the box a little bit on, on writing, you yeah. know? Cause I remember during the, uh, uh, tales of rock and roll album where he first had the singers come back and do it. Everybody just sang like, you know, this, it was done. It was the actually the album was an instrumental album that never came out. And he went back and, and pieced together, songs off of this mm-hmm. so everything was cut and pasted uh so all the singers just sang to it except for grand bonnet grand bonnet rearranged it and his guy cut and recut and pasted it and rearranged it and michael hated it you know because that is not how i put it together <laughs> <laughs> but that was the best song on there because it was you know it didn't go verse chorus verse chorus solo chorus you know it wasn't a a formula yeah you know it's it started with the chorus and then it went to another part and then it was a bridge and then there was a verse you know Michael hated it because it was obscure, you know, cause, just because he doesn't listen to music. So he doesn't find what he does being in a box, you know, yeah, yeah. but, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because he's like that on stage. He doesn't hear anybody on stage hmm. except himself. You know, that's all that's in his monitor is him. So he can hear enough to play, you know, but he would never notice if you played something different. Right. You know. But he, he is classic, though. I mean, my favorite part of talking to him, we were talking about, you know, people criticizing that he, sometimes he'll repeat riffs and things and songs. And he's like, well, I wrote it. So if I want to use it again, I will. And it's like, that's, that's, that's Michael in a nutshell. Yeah. And he doesn't remember what he's wrote anyway. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, proof of that, we were, the funniest thing, uh, there's this movie called Spun. And uh, uh, Billy Corgan did the, the soundtrack on it. And it was all acoustic, though. You know, he does like Number of the Beast acoustic, mm. you know. And, uh, in the movie, he does uh, Love to Love. With, he does a duet with this girl, and it's just acoustic. And uh, we're watching the movie, and that part is on, and Michael walks through the bus and stops and looks at the TV for, like, 30 seconds and looks at me and says, why do I do this song? <laughs> and I just looked at him and said, because you wrote it? <laughs> oh, and he just, like, puzzled look. Still didn't know what song was, I think. <laughs> and walked out, you know. <laughs> that puts it all in a nutshell right there. Yeah. He he's more focused on playing than he does, you know. I mean, I I I could literally see. I got a new song and it's into the arena. Yeah. And not even notice it, you know. It's one of those kind of, you know. He's not that bad, but you know, in that sense of the, uh, you know, into the into that moment, you know. Right. And right. there's some, you know, he writes some obscure stuff because that's all he does is play guitar all day long. He comes into sound check. He's he's noodling with the volume down. It's oh, you're ready? Okay, let's play the song. And he's, you know, in between people are talking, he's just noodling. You know, that's why he can play like that. Right.
So, you know, before I let you go, I want to make sure that we get out all your links and let everybody know where they can pick up their own copy of Backwash. So, uh, why don't you roll all those out for everybody? All right. Uh, well, right off, you can go to RevJones.com. It's updated now, constantly. Uh, you can, there's a link on there to, you know, to check it out, to buy it. Uh, there's also a link. I have a, uh, a base lesson link where if you want to take Skype lessons, you can contact me there. But I'll also uh, give out a free monthly uh, video lesson. You know, And actually, last month I showed, or this month, this current month, I showed how to play backwash, hmm. all the parts and the bass solo and all that. And it's kind of just a fun thing, you know. But that's on there on a link. Then uh, Facebook, it would be uh, Rev Jones Bass, facebook.com slash Rev Jones Bass. And then you can pick up the album pretty much anywhere that sells digital downloads, uh, iTunes, Amazon, all those. And you can hear it on all the streaming, you know, Spotify, you know, all of them. Right. And uh, just remember, when you buy a copy of the Rev Jones Backwash album, it comes with a free picture of Rev Jones, 12 months old, holding a beer <laughs> on the cover. Who could ask for more of a bonus than that one right there? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's free. You don't even have to pay for the cover. There you go. It comes with it. <laughs> and, and, and it's, and it's you know, it, it's a classic old school format, 10 tracks, yeah. nothing that's, you know, eight minute long meandering stuff. It's, it's all yeah. pretty much classic song length and all that as well. Yeah. So it's uh it's a pretty classic in and out, get your Rev Jones fix, and uh, yeah. you can guess all the influences in there. Yeah, and for people that like to be entertained, you know, like with humor, there's always an underlying humor in the vocals. Uh-huh. Whenever, on all the lyrics, all the lyrics on the album, you know, because I, I like that, you know. I, I still like when I hear one of those old songs that they snuck something in that's kind of somewhat vulgar. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the days when you couldn't, to say anything on the radio. You know, yep, you good, have old, good old ACDC that, you know? was always good for that yeah. one with Bon Scott. Oh, yeah, you know, the Rolling, the Rolling Stones, you know, mm-hmm. you make a dead man come. Yep. You know, that's, I always like that kind of sneaking it in there stuff, you know. Uh, and so that's uh, that's why, you know. The one that used to drive my parents crazy was back in the saddle when he would say, the girls are soaking wet. Every time that one came on, I would get the eye roll. Yeah, I mean, and, I, and it's funny because people these days don't even, they don't understand that. Maybe my wife. <laughs> Because they now you can just, just they just take the word out. Yeah, you know, back in the old days you couldn't even do that. That's right. <laughs> oh, it's vulgar. It's not going anywhere. You know, now it's just like yeah, put it all up there. So then you get a song that half the words are gone. Yep, that's dumb. <laughs> you know, that's not fun. <laughs> and you get so used to hearing it that way when you hear it on satellite radio, yeah. it screws you up when you hear it with everything back in. Yeah, exactly. It's like what happened? <laughs> they ruined it. <laughs> it's like seeing a movie that you're used to. You know. You've been seeing it on regular TV so long. Now it's got the dirty parts back in, and you're like, "This seems weird." Yep, awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so that's all the links, and uh, I got a. There, there's going to be a video for backwash that I'm going to put out uh, in about a month. Okay, it's like it's footage of us in the studios, you know, doing it, and uh, then I'll probably shoot another one just just to have. Cause I, I still like having videos where people can people can see you play the song. They also realize how much cooler the song is you know sure and a lot of people now they're discovering all their tunes on youtube as well so it seems to be yeah. oh yeah it might not be mtv yeah. anymore but youtube is definitely a big player in music yeah and you know and proof that people want to see uh those songs played is that these little kids little girls and stuff that are you know you see these videos and they're like oh my god look at it she's 14 years old she's playing you know uh-huh they're they're really not that good. No, I always tell people that come to me and say, "Hey, did you see this kid?" And they can do. I'm like, "Okay, now have that kid jam with a band and have to actually interact. They'll fail." Yeah. So the kid is 15 years old or 14 years old, but he's been playing since he was one. Mm-hmm. So that's 13 years. He should actually be better. 
because yeah. he doesn't have any distractions. He doesn't have a, a, a job, a wife, a girlfriend, you know, bills. He, you know, he right. hasn't heard bad music all his life that's, that's badly influenced him, you know. Right. So he should he should be way better, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, when you see a little kid playing piano, you don't get impressed. And that's exactly the same deal, you know. Right. So, but because of that, you know, I always think of that, you know, it's like, you put those videos out that sh- where you're playing, they watch those people doing it, then they're going to watch you play it and go, wow, that's, you know. So that's my big thing about, you know, I like I like to get it out there for people, you know. Sure, absolutely. So, and I like to keep uh, rock and roll going. Yeah, that's that's you know? that's the whole idea, right? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Buddy Holly's dead, but we're not. <laughs> but yeah, uh, good talking to you. Yeah, you too, man. I'm glad we finally got to hook up. Uh, you know, I said it was yeah, exactly. back years back, but, uh, you know, Jeff was fun to talk to as well. But uh, yeah, I'm glad I was yeah. able to uh, to talk to you now. Yeah, it's, it was funny because, you know, I don't know if you realize that that's the same Jeff Martin that's playing drums on my album. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. It was yeah. it was funny, too, because, you know, I'm listening to it, and I'm like, I wonder if he's got Jeff singing anywhere on here at all. Yeah. And I did, you know, I, I, originally when I had him come aboard, I, I thought, man, I wanted him to sing a couple of songs, you know. Yeah. And because I've never been the lead singer, it's per, per se, on the whole thing, you know. Yeah. I've sang on in bands I was in, I'd sing one song. You know, I do a track on that record, whatever, but uh, I've never been the, just the singer. And, you know, having somebody like Jeff, who's an incredible singer, playing drums, I was like, yeah, maybe he needs to sing a song, you know. <laughs> and he told me, no, he didn't want to because he loves my voice with the songs, you know, yep. just the, the way it is, and which is a great booster, <laughs> you know. When somebody tells you know that that's that good says you sound great doing it. I don't want to sing. Sure, you know that makes you feel good. I wish I wish Glenn Hughes would say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> then I know I was good. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, most a lot of people don't realize that Jeff played in Badlands and you know right and UFO and MSG played drums. You know right. Yeah, yeah, kill a drummer. Oh yeah, he's a, it's like it's like you got Ian Pace and part of John Bonham and you know Ginger Baker all right there. You know, and he didn't know how to play any other style. Yeah. If you said play it, play it more metal. It's still going to sound like one of those guys playing metal. <laughs> yeah. Which I love that. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, I like his style on the drums. Yeah, because he's you know he's thinking differently. He's because th- he's the same way. He's thinking, how do I make this sound? The song sound good. Sure. You know what? What am I going to do to make the song different? You know, kind of. And he, he's like that when he you know when he sings. You know, as well, he's kind of out of the pocket on you know. Are out of the box on writing vocals, you know. Yep. That's why I've always, I've always, you know, enjoyed playing with him. We actually, the first time I met him, we were in a band together, uh, Black Symphony, mm-hmm. and uh, he was the drummer when I first joined, and he sang on every song too because we, you know, there was all three piece harmonies the whole time, you know, and everything. But I went in there, I had no idea that he was going to be that good of a drummer, you know. I just knew it was the singer for Racer X. I'm like, really? <laughs> and uh, I, he started playing. And I was like, oh, I want to be in this band. You know, yeah. <laughs> but plus he's a super awesome guy. You know, that's yeah. but that's how that's how I got the Michael Shaker gig was. Michael was playing in UFO in the last uh, the last tour he did, and Jeff was the drummer. And the tour didn't finish. You know, it's back when Michael had the beard and cross tattooed on his forehead and way overweight, drunk as hell all the time. You know, uh, and but so he, after that tour, he decided to do the first MSG album in forever. So Jeff was coming in to do it. And he told Jeff, you need to find a bass player. <laughs> he has to be crazy like Pete, but has to be able to play. Not like Pete. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and Pete Wayne was one of my idols, you know, not playing wise, but just, you know, stage presence and have, having fun and all that. When I was growing up, you know, 
everybody wanted to be Pete. You know, hell, Steve Harris yeah. is Steve Harris is Pete Way if he could play. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's the, everything the foot up on the monitor, the you know, all that stuff. Right. You know, UFO used to sit, then look down, and the guys in Iron Maiden be right in front of him. You know, watching everything. And uh, but that's that's how I got into with Shaker. And it's funny because we did that album and then Jeff never played with the shaker again. <laughs> I was like, you left me. <laughs> well, cool. Well, uh, I'll, uh, like I said, good talking to you and I'm glad we got it done. Yeah, and, awesome. All right. All Great right. Ralph, have you, a good, uh, good rest of the weekend. And like I said, awesome talking to you finally. Yeah. All right, man. Take care of yourself. Okay. All right. You too, man. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go. My chat with Rev Jones. And we hit our few uh, samples from Rev in there. We started off leading into the interview with the title track, Backwash. And then in the middle of there, we played Ring of Pain. And towards the tail end, a track off of one of the Shanker albums that Rev played on, a uh, album called Beware of Scorpions. And that is the track, Ride the Lightning, back as Rev uh, says during the uh, Shanker bearded days. So as I warned right up front, this one is running pretty darn long compared to how we've been running lately. So I just want to round this one out really quickly by saying, as usual, you can keep up with us at FocusOnMetal.net, over at FocusOnMetal.blogspot.com, over on Facebook, Facebook.com slash FocusOnMetal, as well as Twitter with the uh, handle Focus on Metal. So thanks for spending another week with us here at Focus on Metal. Not sure what is in store for next week. Still trying to figure that one all out. But uh, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.